Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. We began there last week, uh, or two weeks ago, sorry, uh, with an introduction to a new series on parables, and we looked specifically at the parable of the sower, but there are seven parables in uh, this uh, chapter, and they have to do with the kingdom of God. So the title of today's sermon is The Kingdom is Like, and we will explore that as we read uh, today. So uh, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 24 and read through verse 30, uh, sorry, 52, all right? So here then, uh, God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing on the hearing and preaching of your word. We pray that it would be clear. We pray that it would be compelling. We pray that it would result in glory to your name and a blessing to the saints. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. He put another parable before them, verse uh, 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both go together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and made nests in its branches." He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sees all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and set down and sorted the good 
into containers, but threw away with the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And thus far the reading of God's word. So you can see why the sermon today is entitled, The Kingdom is Like, because that is the phrase which Jesus uses to introduce so many of these parables. They indeed are parables of the kingdom. So we have uh, three points to the sermon this morning. First of all, possibilities. The kingdom is like, what are the possibilities? Secondly, the parables themselves, which explain what the kingdom is like. And thirdly, the practice. What uh, does this look like for you and for me? Well, some introductory questions. What is the kingdom of God? It's a big question. It's been debated and discussed a lot in the history of the church. What, What difference does it make, after all? The answer that we give to that question. Why should you... uh, Why should you be concerned about what the kingdom is like? Is this not just an esoteric, uh, abstract, ivory tower theological concept and discussion that really never touches the ground and has no rubber-hits-the-road relevance uh, for me? Well, no. Simply put, no. Jesus' ministry is defined by the kingdom of God, and therefore it is incumbent upon us as a church of Jesus Christ and as followers of Jesus Christ, as his disciples, to understand what in the world defined his ministry. Look with me just to see this so that you don't have to take my word. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and the beginning of all the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, mention this, all right? Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, and you'll note the superscription, Jesus begins his ministry. In Mark and in Luke, we have the very same thing as Jesus begins his itinerant preaching ministry. We're told, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message of central message of what Jesus preached. It is that which defined his ministry. Jesus didn't define his ministry or preach something over and over again which was irrelevant to the lives of his people down throughout the course of centuries. We should be concerned about this. We should understand it, and you should know what difference it makes. And so I'll attempt to do that for you this morning, all right? There's great confusion and a number of possibilities in answer to the question, all right? And this is uh, relevant because it's similar to what we see in Matthew chapter 13. I was mentioning to a few of you that I had particular difficulty in preparing this sermon today in wrapping my mind and my sermonic preparation around it in attempting to actually discern what in the world was going on here in Jesus' preaching. Why are these parables about the kingdom here at this particular point in the Gospel of Matthew? What is it that the text, or if you will, what is it that Jesus is getting at in order that I might understand that and relay that to you, all right? And in thinking about that and praying about that and uh, pondering it, I came to understand that what's going on here is that the Jews of Jesus' day 
had great misconceptions about the kingdom of God. And some of you are good students of the Bible, and you're aware about what those misconceptions were. All right? They, uh, they expected a political kingdom in which a Messiah, a great conqueror, would come, would free them from Roman oppression, would elevate Israel, and would rule over the nations with Israel in supreme prominence. All right, This is what they expected when the Messiah would come. As a matter of fact, truth be known, this is what Jewish people continue to expect down to this day. So this conception, or misconception, if you will, of the kingdom was prominent at the time of Jesus' day amongst the Jewish people, and it continues down to uh, this day. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, all right, is preaching these parables to correct and to clarify the nature of the kingdom of God in order to correct that misconception and properly identify and relate to his hearers, particularly his disciples, what the kingdom of God is like. And so I take my cue from the purpose of the text, all right, as Jesus preaches these parables, I take that as my cue to do that for you today, as there are many misconceptions with respect to the kingdom of God today. And so we explore them, and what are the possibilities of what the kingdom of God is like? And how do they need to be corrected by the text that's set before us? All right? So let's look at a few of them. All right? First of all, the first possibility is that the kingdom is all here now. For those of you with a theological inclination, this is called a realized eschatology and specifically an over-realized eschatology, as if the kingdom is here now and there's nothing else uh, to be done, all right? Uh, in some segments of the Christian church, with this understanding, you have the idea that you could reach sinless perfection because, of course, the kingdom is here and we ought to be able to attain that. Uh, in other uh, segments of the Christian church, you have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Is The kingdom is here. Uh, God has brought this about by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and therefore you ought to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, all right? Or in uh, uh, particularly liberal uh, churches, all right, with this eschatological perspective of the kingdom of God, they see a utopia is to be on earth. This is the root of a social gospel understanding amongst liberal churches. Uh, we ought to be moving for the good of society, right? Uh, the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God in the neighborhood of Boston. We have, want to have uh, all these good things, right? And society should be a utopia on earth. And so the church is engaged in social projects and do-goodism in one area or another in order to bring about the kingdom on earth or to bring about this utopian understanding. All right? The kingdom is all here now, okay? An over-realized eschatology. But look at the text, all right? Let's, let's correct that misunderstanding with what Jesus teaches us. Look at verse 30, for example, all right? Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, all right? Uh, but gather the wheat into my barn. The end is not yet. Look at verse 32, all right? It is this, uh, concerning the kingdom, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger uh, than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. That is, it's not all here now. It's, it has growth that has to undergo from between then and some point in the future. Look at verse uh, 33, uh, same thing, all right? 
the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leveled. That is, it's growing. It's not all here now. Same thing in verse 40, all right? Um, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. Jesus says these things not of now when he's speaking or in the intervening period. He says there are things that are to happen at the close of the age, in the future, all right? So it's not all here now. Those people who think that are understanding a misconception of the kingdom. Secondly, another mistake that people make with the misconception of the kingdom is that the kingdom is all future. It is not here now. Again, those of you that are theologically inclined, and you'll pardon my uh, digression into some theological terminology, this is the prevalent and predominant theological perspective in in the North American church. It is dispensationalism. The idea is that Jesus came preaching the kingdom, they get it right, but the Jews rejected it, so God went into plan B, which was the church, and when Jesus returns, he'll establish his kingdom at some point in the future, and it's then that we will see a messianic age, we will see uh, Israel elevated above the nations, the church will be raptured to heaven, and uh, Messiah will reign uh, from his throne in Jerusalem. That's all in the future, all right? So another misconception, though, all right? Look at verses 31 and 32. 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. There's a period of growth now, all right? The seed is planted now, and it grows for a period of time. It's not all future. There are many other things we could look at, but that's kind of a theological digression that I don't want to go down that path at the moment. Suffice it to say that it's a misconception amongst North American Christians that is in need of correction. The kingdom is not all future. The kingdom is here now, and yet it awaits uh, consummation in the future. Third, that the kingdom somehow is political, all right? that the kingdom somehow is political. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible is a political document, and Jesus was a political uh, king, and the Bible has much to say about politics, but his kingdom is not a political kingdom, all right? Some uh, segments of the Christian church, if Christians uh, can uh, master state power, uh, then they will usher in uh, the kingdom, Um, but... Uh, some of the parables uh, teach that uh, the, that's, it, it's not political in nature, all right? So it has political implications, but the kingdom is not political in nature. Fourthly, and this is perhaps the most prevalent possible misconception of the kingdom, is that the kingdom equals the church, and only the church, so that the reign of Jesus Christ is acknowledged as present. Jesus Christ is Lord now. His kingdom is now, but it is confined to the walls and the, of the church and the lives of Christian people, all right? This is a very serious mistake, all right? It's one that has traction in the history of the Christian church, to be sure. It's not unknown, but it is mistaken. It's a misconception, all right? <clears throat> Look at verse uh, 38. All right. Significantly, Jesus says, the field is the world. 
It's not the church. It's the world. Okay? It is not confined to the church. He's talking about what's going on in the world. All right? Or, look if you will, you cannot identify the kingdom with the church and make sense out of all that is said in the New Testament. For example, the Lord's Prayer, which we go through in our 1037, uh, 1030 service, excuse me. We're taught to pray, thy kingdom come. We're not praying for the church to come. We're praying for the kingdom to come, right? Or think, for example, um, uh, Jesus saying, you must receive the kingdom like a little child. By that, he doesn't mean you must receive the church like a little child, right? Or when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, we looked at it at 1030, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. He's not saying seek first the church, all right? Also, look at verses 31 and 33. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, or it's like a uh, uh, like leaven, all right? Uh, that is, uh, Jesus says the kingdom is qualitatively and quantitatively all of life, all right? The kingdom of God encompasses the entirety of life. It cannot be confined to the walls of the church, nor can it be confined to the lives of Christians. You don't uh, become non-Christians when you leave the church and go uh, back to work in the world. Professor Mark Beach, who was Pastor Dan's professor at uh, Mid-America Reform Seminary, wrote a series of articles on the kingdom of God. If you want them, ask me and I will get them to you uh, a number of years ago. And he had this to say with respect to this idea of confining the kingdom to the church. He said, Christians do not unbind themselves or disunite themselves from their Redeemer when they leave church on Sunday and go to work on Monday. They do not unanoint themselves or de-Christianize themselves when they engage in the wider, diverse affairs of life. Being a plumber, studying philosophy, going for workouts, writing an English paper, selling paint. Truly, Christ's claims on believers bring implications to their calling in the world. Christ's work of redemption is not fenced off from the wider cultural affairs of life. It knows no boundary markers declaring the Lord Jesus Christ has no authority here. No signs may properly be erected in front of a school or a business or any other valid piece of the creation that announces Christ the Redeemer has no claims here. You're entering a no-Christ zone, a sector outside his jurisdiction. I hope that all of you would agree that such a notion would be folly. No, the kingdom cannot be identified with, confined to the four walls of the church or to the lives of Christians. The kingdom encompasses the world. It encompasses all of life. And we'll look at that more in a moment, all right? Christ is cosmic Lord specifically because he is cosmic Savior. This ought to be apparent to anybody who is familiar with the words of the Great Commission. The resurrect Jesus, having been crucified for the sins of his people, risen from the dead on the third day on the occasion of his ascension, which is his coronation, where he's crowned king of kings and lord of lords, he declares all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. There is not one area of the cosmos that is not under the authority and the reign of Jesus Christ. 
Now, to be sure, as Pastor Dan would tell you, as a good theologian, there are distinctions to be made about the kingdom of power, the kingdom of grace. We're not going to get into that today. You can discuss it with Pastor Dan later. But suffice it to say that we cannot buy any of these misconceptions of the kingdom according to what Jesus teaches us here, all right? God's kingdom is God's kingship in his work of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. All right, let's look at the parables. Now, many people, I'm going to give an apology here or a defense to begin with of how I'm treating this. Many people get into the depth and the details of every little item in the parables, right? What are the birds of the air and what's what's this, what's that? Most of that is just insignificant, all right? It misses the point of the parable. So let me focus on the main points, all right, without getting into the details of every single parable in the entirety of this chapter. The parables have three themes in common, all right? The parables which we write here have three themes in common. One, growth. Two, judgment. And three, gain. Growth, judgment, and gain. That's what these parables are relating to us as their hearers, all right? Let's deal with them in that order. First of all, growth, all right? Verse 31, verse 33, the mustard seed and the leaven, all right? The kingdom grows, all right? The kingdom grows. The kingdom is already present. Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. It was the central theme of his preaching, He says the kingdom is at hand, it is present now, it is present as a result of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, his coronation, right? All right? So the kingdom is now, all right, and yet it is not fully realized. There is something yet to come, all right? So the present is now, and yet it is not fully yet. It is present, but it is not consummated. It is here, but it is not fully realized, if we were to use that term, all right? There is something that awaits his return, okay? So it doesn't wait for him to return to establish his kingdom, to inaugurate his kingdom. That's already happened. But when he comes back, he will consummate that kingdom. He will bring it to conclusion, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, all right? So the point is... That in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming, between its inauguration and its consummation, there's growth that occurs. Little mustard seed, all right? I couldn't find one, so I don't have one, but it's very small, all right? Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very small in its origin. And yet, eventually it grows to be this huge, massive tree that the birds of the air come to live in. Or like leaven. Now, I'm not a cook, but we could ask Joanna Morales, who cooks our uh, Lord's Supper bread every week, about leaven. Because you put leaven in the dough, and then you have to wait for the dough to grow, right? And it grows, and then you stick it in the oven and bake it, right? So it grows. Here's parables of growth. The kingdom is here, but it grows until it's finally consummated. All right? Michael Williams, who I read with prophets, said this. The New Testament answers that the kingdom at present is hidden, advancing in secret. 
As the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 reveal, the kingdom has invaded history without disrupting the present order. It grows slowly within human affairs. The reign of sin and death will be destroyed and God's rule will know its full glory. But until that day, the kingdom of God is hidden to all but those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The glorious manifestation of the rule of God that will affect the utter defeat of sin and death will be preceded by an indefinite period of hiddenness and ambiguity. In fact, sometimes the rule of God will be scarcely discernible in the world. There are certainly times like that, haven't there been? Right? Okay. So growth. Secondly, gain. Gain. We see this um, in... Uh, the treasure and the pearl of great price, all right? Verse 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field, right? Imagine, some of these things are hard agricultural illustrations, right? Because we live in an urban atmosphere, right? But imagine that you bought a plot of land in Texas, I used to own land in Texas, and after you bought it, they discovered oil on that. Whoa! Now, that would be worth a lot of money. It's kind of like what Jesus is talking about here, right? Okay, or verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I used to work in the Persian Gulf um, as a diver, and I worked, actually worked with divers who began the company that I worked with as pearl divers. And pearls are worth a lot of money, all right? And when you get a good pearl that's not yellow, that's not discolored, but is white and it's perfectly round, those things cost a lot of money, all right? Pearls of great value. That's what the kingdom of God is like, right? And it's a matter of gaining that kingdom. All right? It's of inestimable value. The worth of the kingdom, all all of salvation and all its benefits, is worth an inestimable value. It's worth more than a pearl of great price. Think of Paul when he says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. What in the world? All eternity will not be long enough to exhaust every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think of forgiveness of sins. Think of eternal life. Think of freedom from slavery to the devil. Think of all the blessings of salvation. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's inestimable in its value. It's great gain to be in God's kingdom. And then thirdly, judgment judgment. Something that the utopian espousers completely eliminate as distasteful to them. But Jesus says the kingdom entails judgment. Look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers. And then verse 49 So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. The kingdom of God is not all inestimable value and worth and gain because there are those who reject the king. There are those who will not bow the knee or with their tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There are those that operate against his purposes. There are those who work against his people, who work against his church. And at the end of the age, they will be judged. Just a minor digression, this ought to be great comfort to anyone who has experienced injustice. And I know a number of you have experienced injustices, either on the job or in our society or amongst friends and family. Right? That one day, one day, God as a God of justice will make all things right and people will be judged. They will be held to account. They will be called before the throne of King Jesus and they will answer for their unjust deeds. And they will be thrown into the fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a very unpleasant subject. It's unpleasant because of its horror. The never-ending howls of the damned, weeping and gnashing of teeth in rage even in the fires of hell against God. Well, what about the practice? What difference does this make? What relevance could this have for you and for me? Why is it important to answer the questions with which we began? What is the kingdom like? And to understand truly what it is that Jesus is teaching here. Well, let's just reflect on the three parabolic themes, all right, of judgment, growth, and gain. All right? First of all, since we just left it, let's continue with judgment. Jesus says... There's a day coming when he returns to consummate his kingdom when there will be perfect, final justice executed. Now, let nobody be mistaken. We know from John chapter 3, for example, that Jesus came the first time not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? The Jews, in this part of the misconception, you'll remember John the Baptist has to uh, address that when he says the root is uh, the axe is laid at the root of the tree right thinking that Jesus is here right the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he's going to judge all these sinners right he has to be corrected no that that waits when Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago it wasn't to judge the world it was that the world might be saved through him he came to bring sinners to repentance he came that those who deserve hell those who are worthy of God's perfect justice being executed upon them for their sins, right? 
They deserve the horrors of hell. But that's not why Jesus came the first time. The time between his first coming and his second coming is what the Bible refers to as the day of salvation. Which is why Paul can say, while it is yet the day of salvation, call upon the Lord that you may be saved. Call upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest and you will find peace for your souls. I have come for this purpose. Isaiah says, Look unto me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Peter says, You wonder why? You wonder why there's there's this period of waiting and you cry out in mockery? Where is this day that you speak of? Where is this day of the Lord? And Peter says, God is not like you. He desires that none should perish, but that all might come to repentance. And he has set a day, yes, a day of consummation, a day of judgment. But until then, now it is the day of salvation. Repent, turn from your sins. Turn to the Lord. Look to Him. Be forgiven. And if any in the hearing of my voice have not yet done that, now is the time. Now. I remember when I was young. And I said, yeah, 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 religions for old people. I used to go to church. It was filled with old ladies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was raised religious. You know, I'll get religious when I get old. When I get near to dying, maybe I'll get religious. Maybe you're sitting here and saying the same thing. You know what God used in my conversion? I was the personification of procrastination. Why would I do something today if I could put it off until tomorrow? <laughs> Let it wait. First time I went to a church worship service, the preacher preached. He said, you know what Satan's most famous tactic is to prevent people from becoming Christians? Put it off another day. Put it off another day. It was like a spear had gone through me and nailed me to my chair. That was me. God spoke through that preacher and convicted me that now is the day. Now is the time. Don't put it off another day. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I beseech you, don't go to sleep tonight without being made right with Jesus Christ, without seeking him and saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, wash me in your blood. Cleanse me from my sin. Reconcile me to yourself. Because there's a day coming. Don't be caught dead without Jesus Christ. Judgment. Secondly, growth. Growth. The kingdom grows, and it's comprehensive. We've already dealt with the fact that you can't confine or restrict the kingdom to the church or to the lives of Christians. It is all-encompassing, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Michael Williams 
says this. He says, the kingdom at present advances not by revolution or overt power, but by spiritual transformation and the moral reformation of the people of God. As a small seed produces the mature tree, the kingdom works from the inside out, transforming and redirecting the life of the believer and through him his society towards obedient service to the will of God. It's what happens. The kingdom of God begins by the conversion of an individual, by God speaking his gospel into a person's life and changing their heart, granting them new life, cleansing them from their sins, reconciling them to God, and setting them forth now to live a life devoted to the glory of God and the blessing of his people. But it doesn't stay in the heart. It works itself out into every area of life. It affects his family. It affects his social relations. It affects his work relations. It affects everything. It affects how he thinks about money. William Hendrickson, unless anybody think this is my post-millennial ranting, William Hendrickson was no post-millennialist. But listen to William Hendrickson. Spiritually great results generally develop from small beginnings. He's talking about the mustard seed and the leaven. Christ's rule of grace, no matter how desperate and seemingly insignificant at first, is bound to go forward, conquering and to conquer, from victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. Accordingly, to those who first heard it, this parable was saying, have patience, exercise faith, keep on praying, keep on working, God's program cannot fail. It is saying the same thing to those who have come afterward. Christ's rule enters human hearts, this happens Um, by uh, uh, implantation from without. But once established, this rule of Christ through the operation of the Holy Spirit begins to operate also from within with the result that the changed and constantly changing person begins to exert his influence for good and rely on individual but family life, also in every sphere of life. The important fact is that art, science, literature, business, industry, commerce, government... These and all other departments of human thought and endeavor begin to be uh, blessed by this man's activity. The point of the parable is that yeast, once inserted, continues its process of um, fermentation until the whole batch has grown, has risen. So also the citizen of the kingdom demands that every sphere of life uh, shall contribute to full share of service, honor, and glory to him who is king of kings and lord of lords. And he concludes, he says, his purpose is not merely to get to heaven when he dies, or only to be an instrument in God's hands and bringing others there, but everywhere to bring every thought of whatever kind into submission to, and therefore harmony with the mind and will of Christ. That is to demand that not only every tongue, but also every domain of life shall exalt him. Now, I read that, but allow me to pause there for a moment. Do you see what a difference that makes in your understanding of the kingdom? If the kingdom has only to do with what goes on here on Sunday, or a ministry of mercy, or the proclamation of the gospel and evangelism, if the kingdom has only to do with the lives of the Christian in their private devotions and in their family life, than all of life is forgotten. Ah, but it's not forgotten. It's yielded to the devil. 
No, this makes an enormous difference in how you live. This is what I refer to as a positive future orientation. The kingdom is growing, imperceptibly perhaps, up and down at times, but this is what Jesus is saying. It's growing. It encompasses all of life, every area of life. Now, I've heard from some of you, and I know others of you think, the sentiment that, well, the world is a mess. Just pay attention to the news, read the papers, watch the television, look at the state of our culture and our society. We're going to hell in a handbasket on a grease slide even. Jesus must be coming back soon. Hey, Maranatha. Not if what Jesus says here is true. Now, look, it's within the world. If Jesus wants to come back tomorrow, that's his prerogative. All right, fine. But Jesus says the kingdom is growing. It's going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It's an important lesson here. All right? Listen to me. Judge the news by the Bible. Don't judge the Bible by the news. Don't read the New York Post or the New York Times, whatever your particular inclination is. Don't listen to Fox or CNN, whatever your inclination is, and come to the conclusion, well, Jesus must be coming back soon. It's really, really, really bad. Lift up your eyes to the horizon. Many people are saying, no, the next Christendom is in the majority world. What's going on in Africa? What's going on in Asia? What's going on in South America? What is the Lord doing in these countries? Pay attention to those news reports. The multitudes of converts, the growth of the church, the multiplication of congregations. Yeah, God may be removing the lampstand from America for our unbelief and disobedience. But he's not finished yet. And then gain. Lastly, whoops, time. Gain. The kingdom of God is like a treasure and a pearl. What's it worth to you? What's it worth to you? Do you understand the worth of your eternal soul, your never dying soul? Do you understand the value of knowing your sins are forgiven? That you have peace with God? That you have eternal life? That when you die, you'll go to heaven, not hell? Do you see the value of that? Do you understand the worth of a new heart, freedom from sin, a new life, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of laws and commands that guide you through life? as a light unto your path, of a church fellowship that encourages and sustains you, these are all aspects of the kingdom of God that are of inestimable worth. I ask you, now I I, I tell you, do not take these things for granted. Never, ever, and we all have this tendency, myself included, 
to take these things for granted, to say, oh, these are things I know. These are things I'm familiar with. Don't ever do that. Get alone with God and think about what it means to be a Christian. All the things that I've just said that God has done in reaching down from heaven, plucking you as a brand from the fire, drawing you to himself with cords of compassion, adopting you into his family, and bestowing upon you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places now and forever and ever and ever. How could you ever take those things for granted? If you ever do get on your knees and say, Oh Lord, forgive me. Oh Lord, forgive me. Thank you. Let me go forth to seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. In Jesus' words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is indeed a lamp unto our feet. We thank you for sending Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom. We're thankful that he did so not by nominating Supreme Court justices or by electing political rulers, but that he did so by sacrificing himself for our sins, by dying on the cross, by being raised and ascending into heaven to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We long that every heart confess that very fact. Help us to live it out in our daily lives, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.